Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. A belated Happy New Year to all our listeners. That's for 2022, in case you're wondering. And against my better judgement, we start this year with Jeff's new mystery spot. Lads, look out. If the show is allowed to continue after that, we pause from the usual humour to look back at some of the film industry people who passed in 2021. And then we change out of our casual clothes, except Neil, who assures us he wears golfing pyjamas 24-7, and into our tuxedos to present our alternate awards for 2021. Finally, we look ahead as we talk about some of the films we are looking forward to seeing this year. Any clink, Jeff? I haven't heard anything, although I'd love to see him in a remake of Big, playing the Tom Hanks role. (laughs) Are you off your meds again, Jeff? (laughs) I told the doctor to shoot him. I mean double his dose. (laughs) Enough. Let's do our usual introductions so the listeners know who we are. Greetings and salutations. I'm Jeff. Hi, my name is Graham. Hi, my name is Neil. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on At The Flicks, you can read about my film tastes via my blog page on philthebearblog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren, and other than being on At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at DazzleLovesMovie, you can read my blogs at HalfGuarded.com, and I also recently appeared on my friend's YouTube show, Cup of Joe with Grandpa Des. Jeff, in the intro script it said you had a new mystery spot. It's not another bloody Bond quiz, is it? Or is it related to that Thank God It's Friday fan club you're trying to set up? Nope. Although, Phil, that is a cracking idea. I will have millions following us in no time. Crackers idea, more like it. Exactly, like those excitable villagers with pitchforks at the end of Frankenstein. Oh, ye of little faith. No, my idea is, and this is a surprise for them as much as it is for you listeners, because I haven't told them. So I'm going to unveil a new idea. I've had to temporarily remove the quiz as I've run out of Thank God It's Friday questions. (laughs) In its place, I've put some proper film news. Now, each month, I'm going to reveal to the team three bits of film news I found interesting and I think a little bit off the beaten track and I'm going to ask for their views on these items. This is new and I want to baby step the team through this uncharted water. So like with I deal with any Tory backbenchers, I'm going to throw them some red meat to start. Item one. A new Marvel TV series is currently filming in Yorkshire called Secret Invasion. And it'll be on the Disney Channel either November or December. Samuel L. Jackson stars alongside Ben Mendelsohn, repeating roles they've played in other Marvel shenanigans. Also in the cast are Amelia Clark and Olivia Colman. The plot deals with a group of Skrulls trying to take over the Earth. Now, personally, I thought they were better bad guys when they were in Dark Crystal. (laughs) But it has been known, and I don't do celebrity gossip, so I'm just going to throw a little bit in here, (laughs) that while they've been filming this, Mr. Jackson has been going out to a couple of Italian restaurants there. Apparently, he quite enjoys it and takes an extra portion of tiramisu to go. I'm not going to name the restaurants because I believe a gentleman should eat in peace. But if you are that way, you might see Samuel L. Jackson. That's item one. Item two. Director Roland Emmerich plans to turn his Moonfall feature, which we'll be discussing next month, into a trilogy if this first film 
one of the largest budgeted independent films in history, is a hit. He plans to have the second film end with a massive cliffhanger, so it'll be like his Empire Strikes Back, before resolving everything in the third film. Sounds intriguing, but then again, on paper, so did the sequel to Independence Day. And finally, if you live in Glasgow, you probably haven't been getting much sleep recently. HBO Max's film Batgirl has been filming numerous night scenes. Leslie Grace will play the title character, and J.K. Simmons will play Commissioner Gordon. However, the big news is, and he has been spotted around Glasgow, Michael Keaton is playing Batman Bruce Wayne. Him playing the character in this and The Flash is indeed exciting news. Maybe other actors could return to the role of Cape Crusader. How about Val Kilmer? He can do the voice now. So, gentlemen, over to you. Any comments on this month's film news? Well, we're probably going to get sued out of existence by Val Kilmer's lawyers. (laughs) But apart from that, it does sound like Samuel L. Jackson going out to uh, Italian restaurants. Yeah, no, Um, that is true. Everything I have told you there is true, other than Val Kilmer. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to Secret Invasion, although haven't they changed who the baddies are going to be? It's not going to be the scrolls in They were good in Dark Crystal, though. They were great <laughs> villains in that. <laughs> uh, I think they're changing it to the Kree, aren't they? The Kree are going to be the ones invading? You've lost me now. But, I mean, the point of Secret Invasion is that basically the scrolls are basically taken over by taking over people's identities. So you've got to have them as the... I mean, you don't have to be... I know the scrolls that in at the moment are sort of, you know, are allied with, uh, you know, with S.H.I.E.L.D., but... You know, you can you could get like a, a, a different hardcore faction, you know, who are the ones who are basically doing all the infiltrating. So I, I, I would imagine you'd have to have them as the villains. But, well, you know, we'll see. That's the whole point of Secret Invasion is who who is a scroll and who isn't. Samuel L. Jackson's character is living on their space station. So, but like I say, you, you don't, you know, not all scrolls have to be them. You know, you could get like a the al-Qaeda of the um, of the scroll world. Oh, boy. Oh, you know. <laughs> right. I trust yeah. your judgment. <laughs> By the way, I came across that Batman news because I was listening to LBC late one night when I couldn't sleep. All these people from Glasgow kept phoning into the show because they couldn't sleep because of all the bloody noise outside. <laughs> really? Brilliant. Yeah. I forgot, I've actually forgotten what one of the bits of news he said. Oh, it's the Roland Emmerich one. Yeah, that can stay forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's going to be all. I'm seeing it this weekend. I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, as a, I was saying to you earlier, it's a bit weird. You've got Blue Moon, mm. Quarter Moon, and now you've got Murder Moon, Roland Emmerich, the man who does worst case scenarios better than anybody else. Okay. Well, for now, we'll draw a line under that. Your intrepid reporter will be back with. Three new items next month. The Batman was filmed in Glasgow as well. It's the TV series and the new film. Are Glasgow no, it's not eight. a TV series. It is a film. Bat- the Batgirl is a film. Yes, not the, the, the Batman, Batman also is filmed in uh, Glasgow. Gotham yeah. is now Basically, Glasgow. Gotham is, yeah, Glasgow, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, they've, they've had to redevelop it to get it up to the level of Gotham. That's the problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a huge amount of money spent on it. <laughs> I have a theory about the new Batman film. I just have this suspicion that it's gonna, there's going to be a surprise and it's going to tie into the Joker film. Uh-huh. I'm probably completely wrong, 
but it just that you know it, do it doing this different Batman and and doing that. I, I just I just think it the the, the twist is going to be that it um, it turns out is in the uh, it's the Bruce Wayne that met the Joker as a kid. It's it's going to be that universe. There's rumours, like really heavy rumours, that um, the Joker will appear in the film, and it's yes. played by the Irish actor who was oh, in Eternals. Anybody but Gerald Otto. The guy from Eternals. It's the guy from Eternals who could, like, control people. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, in the trailer, it does show you um, him visiting somebody in jail, and it doesn't show you who he's actually talking to. Yeah, yeah but, but their trailers are weird anyway. They gave you, like, a 10-minute excerpt from the film the other day which was bizarre so yeah moving on to about enough of superheroes now um, <laughs> apparently even i have to admit this was a pretty good idea apparently what's what it says here anyway uh and now we move to a serious section <laughs> of the show <laughs> The saddest part of being a film buff is seeing the annual long list of industry names who've passed away. Some of these people are household names, many aren't. The comfort we, as movie watchers, have is the knowledge that their work is preserved for future generations to see. It was especially sad during the second year of COVID to see so many great people pass on. For our roll call this year, we'll keep the format as we introduced last year with a slight addition that you'll see at the end. We have picked five names which have had an impact on each of our film-going lives. Each person will talk about the individual they selected and why their loss means something to them. Sadly, as the choice was so large this year, we will also include a brief roll call for other people who've enriched our lives through their talent. This is not meant in any way to diminish the achievements of anyone else who has passed on in 2021. They may not be mentioned, however, they are certainly not forgotten. Let's talk about the first of the five people we are eulogising. Darren. Christopher Plummer, 1929 to February 2021. I had to write him a letter. I wrote Terry a letter. Oh, you did? Yeah, I gave him a shit. I'll never work with him again, of course. (laughs) I mean, he won't have me. A Canadian actor born into a wealthy and connected family, Christopher's life took a very different path to his folks because of his love of acting. From the age of 17, he started receiving excellent notices for his theatre work. Over the next few years, his reputation continued to grow. And interestingly, at this time, he also worked alongside a young understudy called William Shatner. Eventually, he went to Broadway and from there to live American TV during the 1950s. Small parts in movies followed, but his big break came with his role of Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Plummer always looked back on this film less than favourably calling it The Sound of Mucus. However, it gave him the ability to pick the parts he wanted. His film career went from incredible highs like The Royal Hunt of the Sun, The Silent Partner and Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, where he once again worked with William Shatner, to such lesser fare as The Blizzard and Must Love Dogs. Christopher Plummer never stopped working and in later life was acknowledged as the genius actor he always was with such films as The Beginners, for which he won an Oscar, and being a late addition to All the Money in the World, another Oscar win, where he replaced Kevin Spacey, whose scenes had already been completed. An actor who proved he had longevity and class. Other films of note, 1970's Waterloo, 
The Return of the Pink Panther in 1975, Somewhere in Time in 1980, Wolf in 1994, and more recently, Knives Out in 2019. For my own part, when I think of Christopher Plummer, the term that just comes to mind is just sheer class. He had this real gravitas about him that just added to any film he was in, either as a stern but classy gentleman or sometimes a role he did really, really well, which was that of a cold, calculating villain. For me, he was one of the first actors that I ever really became aware of because, for one thing, my mum would watch The Sound of Music every single year because it always seemed to be on at Christmas. And so I also used to sit with it and watch it. But I also saw him at a very early age in the Battle of Britain. I got the sense then of sort of actors being in different roles and in different movies. I got so used to him being this classy actor, even at a young age, and I sort of like, you know, respected him and knew he was good, that I was really bemused when I was about 10 years old, when I rented an Italian Star Wars ripoff called Star Crash. Even though I was sort of young and didn't really have much taste in films, even then I could realise that it was really out of place and that to of his standard, being in this really, really cheap, crappy movie. And he also ended the film with one of the most bizarre monologues of all time. The, the only thing about it, I will say, is that at least he played a, a role with some gravitas because he played the emperor of the universe. Even later in life, he was constantly in films that I really, really enjoyed. He, uh, I really enjoyed him in the Imaginarium of uh, Dr. Panassus. I really liked him in The Man Who Invented Christmas, where, where he played Ebenezer Scrooge. But two really odd ones for me were him playing the main villain in Dragnet, which was a, a comedy role, and also playing probably the second best villain in Star Trek history when he played um, Chang in Star Trek VI. I honestly no idea what he thought of those roles, but while some actors of his stature I think would have visibly phoned it in, he actually did come across as being absolutely totally committed to the role, and he really made them something else. And I think that, to me, really sums up what he was, which was basically an actor with absolute sheer class. I agree. And I think one of the things that's come out from what you said there, Darren, he had this stern quality about him. You know, he would play it in, like, the man who would be king is Sherlock Holmes and murder by decree somewhere in time. And yet every now and again, he'd throw you a curveball. You, you mentioned Star Crash, but I would say for me, it was Royal Hunter the Sun. To see that South American character that he played was just against everything I know of the man. And he constantly surprised me. Yeah. And I do think one of his last great roles was Scrooge uh, in The Man Who Invented Christmas. But, he was yeah, brilliant, wasn't he? Yeah, just just sheer class. I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, he was, he was Charles Muntz in, uh, in Up, wasn't he? He had this oh, yeah. fantastic voice. Something is coming out here as well. He was great at playing villains. Mm. As Darren says, he's a class act. He would always turn up, deliver the goods, no matter how crazy it was. I mean, they used to call him an emergency plumber in the industry because if they had a problem, they could just phone him up and he'd just deliver the goods. And um, certainly in the um, the film about uh, John Paul Getty Jr., wasn't it? The, um, yeah. All the money in the world. All the money in the world. Thank you, Jeff. He was called in really at the sort of 48 hours before they started filming and he just did it. It was brilliant. Really? Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. Natural. 
for me, I know, I know that obviously he's a star in his sort of younger days and stuff, but actually the his last sort of few films, so like Knives Out and All the Money in the World, where he's very much the supporting role, but really, really sort of leaves an impression. Mm, That's yeah. kind of how I remember him. Yeah. Mm. Have you ever seen The Sound of Music, Phil? Have I? <laughs> yes, I have quite a few times. <laughs> I managed it once. <laughs> and that was only a few years ago when I really thought I ought to. I mean, I don't like the film, but I do acknowledge it's a great performance from him. And it set this stern persona in, into mm. place. A counterpoint to everything else that's going on. I can't believe you've only ever seen it once. I mean, I... I no, I, I turn it off. I've walked out of room. <laughs> You've got to admit in Sound of Music, the bit where the nuns appear at the end and they've taken out the um, that part of the uh, of the car to stop the Nazis' cars working. That's funny. You've got to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's fine. Okay. Graham. Right. Uh, from award-winning and hard-working Mr. Plummer, we turn to another hard-working actor who is perhaps not as well remembered these days, but was a major star in the 1960s and 70s, George Siegel. We've been married for 11 years and not once in all that time have I ever been unfaithful to her in the same city. Where is she now? Out of town. 1934 to February 2021. One of the first actors who kept his Jewish name rather than changing it for the Hollywood of the time, Mr. Siegel grew up in New York where he became hooked on acting through his love of watching movies. He graduated college with a Bachelor of Arts in Drama. He also developed a lifetime love of music, ultimately releasing three jazz albums. Before he could fulfill his acting ambition, Mr. Siegel was drafted into the Korean War. After that diversion, George became a New York theatre actor. Like most actors of the period, he also worked on TV, and that gradually led him in the mid-60s to cinema. Initially, he was seen as a dramatic actor, starring in such films as King Rat, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for which he received his only Oscar nomination, and the Quiller Memorandum. Over time, his wonderful comic timing became recognised and he was to appear in A Touch of Class, for which he won a Golden Globe and Fun with Dick and Jane. Unfortunately, his career had a stumble when he walked off the film 10 to be replaced by Dudley Moore and lost out on the role of Arthur again to Dudley Moore. While his acting light never burned as bright again, he gave memorable performances in 2012, Love and Other Drugs, and the TV series The Goldbergs, a truly talented actor who will hopefully be rediscovered through his excellent body of work. Other films of note, Ship of Fools in 1965, No Way to Treat a Lady in 1968, The Owl and the Pussycat 1970, and California Split in 1974. I really like George Siegel, and to me, he was one of those actors who should have been British. He was a Jewish boy from New York, but if he'd been born in Golders Green, I think he would have been held up in the same sort of esteem as uh, people like Michael Caine or Christopher Plummer, who we just talked about, or Claude Rains. Again, um, I stress Christopher oh, Plummer's Plummer, not British. Yeah, stop being such a stickler. We can claim these people as we need them. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. He's Both of them. Posh. He's got to be British. And he played, and he played uh, villains, so therefore he's British. But if he was British, I think he would have 
had a, a lot more variety in his output. He started on the stage and then via TV went into films and finally ended up on, back on TV doing mainly comedy roles. The US film industry itself is fairly linear. It's a progression. In the UK, actors just seem to be more flexible and flip from doing TV to film uh, and stage work as well as huge in the UK. And I think that given him much more dynamic range and, and he would have been in a lot more films. Jeff and I were talking about Siegel a few days ago and we both discovered him in the 70s as mainly a comic actor in such films as the wonderful The Hot Rocks. What name was that film given in the UK, Jeff? So in in the UK, it was originally called How to Steal a Diamond in Four Uneasy Lessons, a title (laughs) which gave away the entire plot of the film. (laughs) Genius marketing, eh? (laughs) And then, so both Jeff and I, we discovered him as as this comedy guy, and then we were... As we went back and researched films from the 1960, or to be honest, as they came on TV, we discovered his more dramatic role. So we sort of we saw his his career going backwards through time. So films like Lost Command, a war movie where he starred alongside Anthony Quinn, and the film that got him the Oscar uh, recognition, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, back in 1966, where he acts with some Welsh guy in his tart. I can't remember who those were. <laughs> Sorry, he led him astray. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. In the 60s, he was a leading man. And then during the 70s, he was more of a supporting actor and part of an ensemble cast. And then in the 80s, moved into comedy and onto TV. I think he had the worst agent in Hollywood. He showed in the 60s and early 70s, he really had some acting chops to take on leading roles, but they never seemed to give him the right films to, to, to show off this talent. It's sad that someone so talented could not command more leading roles. Finally, I was going through his back catalogue of films and I made a list of great films that he was in, but I've never seen. Let me just uh, give a couple of these as parting gestures. In 1965, Siegel played egocentric painter in an ensemble cast led by Vivian Lee and Lee Marvin in Stanley Kramer's acclaimed drama Ship of Fools, which was nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture. And then he also, in the same year, he also played the title role of the scheming POW in the well-regarded war drama King Rat, a role originally meant for Frank Sinatra. Uh, and he received acclaim for both performances Mr. Siegel, you will be fondly remembered by me, and I'm looking forward to a journey into your back catalogue. I mean, like what you guys have mentioned, I, as, as a young, I always um, knew him from his uh, comedy roles in films that I was probably a bit too young to see. I mean, stuff like the, um, the you know, I think there's a film called The Last American Couple. He always seemed to oh, be... Oh, yes, yeah, Last Married Couple well, in America. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, you know, and stuff like that. But um, I sort of, and, and lots of films that just used to be on. But I always, it always seemed to be like this sort of married character going through a midlife crisis. That seemed to be a role, you know. But he had this like sort of really funny charisma. Another thing that I, I really remember, this is going to sound an odd one, is the very early "It'll Be Alright" on the night specials with Dennis Norden, which. Um, if you don't know what those um, are, they basically used to show all the outtakes from movies and stuff. I, for some reason, he used to be in those a hell of a lot because he seemed to have this thing but, uh, about giggling during a film. Being, uh, you know, he'd suddenly just start laughing and <laughs> wouldn't be able to stop. And, and that sort of, to me, 
again cemented him as somebody who was like you know a really funny character. I, I seem to remember him as as well. I always caught him in like really sort of B movie type movies because I remember in the uh, the Saint Valentine's Day Massacre film that Roger Corman did. But also, yes, also great film. Yeah, yes, but great film. Also, I remember him from this like a disaster movie uh, called A Roller Coaster. If I remember correctly, he played <gasps> well, like a, um, a, a, a a safety inspector who was investigating this roller coaster mm. that somebody was planning to bomb. And it was at this time when you were getting... Um, yeah, Timothy Bottoms. Right, okay. And it's at this time when you were getting basically loads of um, disaster movies that just they were just running out of things to have disaster because you had planes, you had boats, you had earthquakes. I remember we were sort of like... We were coming up with like roller coaster disaster movies, you know, and I remember, and for some reason, I remember him um, vividly in that one. But yeah, he was somebody that I always saw as this charismatic, you know, this charismatic, funny guy. That's how I remember him. And that's interesting because uh, my my thoughts exactly the same as Graham, and we did have that conversation where he played backwards in my mind. It's the comedy stuff I saw first, you know, the hot rock, a love, no way to treat a lady with Rod Steiger. Touch of Class, hilarious film. And and a film that's forgotten now, The Blackbird, a comedy sequel to The Maltese Falcon. And it's just worth tracking down. It's just off the wall. And then I'd go and watch something like King Rat and just be amazed at that's the a great film. cynical nature of that film. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. He just lost it with films like Lost and Found and Carbon Copy. You clear the scripts weren't anywhere near the standard for, for an actor like that. And, and I'm pleased he... You know, with the Goldbergs, he he got that recognition later in life again, uh, and even in 2012 from the great Roland Emmerich, of course. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, so so he was there, but it's yeah, it's it's those moments, especially someone who was able to keep up with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, he had talent, a real talent. But yeah, what did I, he do? Yeah, His I've never seen agent that. Agent should be I'm shot, a... haven't you? No, oh, it's fantastic. It's tough. Yeah, admittedly, and there is it is Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor absolutely laying into each other. I mean, really laying into each other. But on okay. the side, there's this this George Seagull just sort of in the headlights of those two, and uh, he comes across. He is absolutely brilliant in it. But, Phil, yeah. an actor before your time, or are you aware of him? Yeah, you. I've not got a clue who he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got our kids today, eh? Bloody hell. <laughs> I, like, I like to think that, you know, I've watched a lot of, you know, stuff. All the stuff you mentioned in the 60s and 70s, I've not even heard of quite a few of those. The films from the, you know, the the bit parts that you did, like 2012, and some of the others mentioned. I've seen those films. Don't know who George Siegel is. Sorry. No, you probably wouldn't. Well, on your list, mate, put The Hot Rock, No Way to Treat a Lady, and King Rat. Yeah, great. And who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And yeah, if you want a real grown-up argument. Yes. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Taylor shouts at uh, Richard Burton, you're going bald, and he replies, so are you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And staying with you, Neil. From a star who had a long career to one whose career was sadly cut short by illness, Helen McCrory, 1968 to April 2021. Do you tell your friends you're painting a gangster? Our first two obituaries have one thing in common, that mid-career slump. For Helen McCrory, there was no such thing, only an acting talent that was getting better and better along with the parts she was offered. Like many British stage actors, her overnight success in film and TV came after a significant period in the theatre. 
half Welsh. You just added that, Jeff. Helen learned her craft at the Drama Centre in London, notably playing Lady Macbeth, Olivia in Twelfth Night and Rosalind in As You Like It, and winning a prize for her 1993 performance in Trelawney of the Wells at the National. Alongside her stage work, Helen had memorable supporting roles in such films as Interview with the Vampire, Charlotte Grey and The Count of Monte Cristo. However, it was her excellent performance as Cherie Blair in both The Queen and The Special Relationship that got her known to a wider public. Both films worth catching if you remember Cherie Blair. Helen plays her to a T and it's not easy upstaging Michael Sheen. At this time, she was also cast as Bellatrix Lestrange in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, a role she withdrew from when she became pregnant. And we can only wonder how darker that would have been um, on the films mm. rather than uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Later, Helen McCrory was cast as Bellatrix's sister for the last three Harry Potter movies. By now, Helen was also a major TV star, thanks to such series as Penny Dreadful and probably the role she will be best remembered for, Aunt Polly in the tough Peaky Blinders. Helen McCrory, a British star taken from us far too soon. Other films of note, Enduring Love from 2004, Doctor Who, 2010, Harry Potter and the Deathly Harris Part 1, 2011, Hugo, 2011, and Skyfall, 2012. The one thing she had was presence. You have to watch Peaky Blinders to see what she could have become. In a TV series where she has to stand up to Killian Murphy's Tommy, she absolutely knocks it out of the park. She's a scary lady, and for a short while she was in film and TV, she burned bright, hinting at what was to come. I still feel she'd have been a natural successor to the kind of British actress we seem to produce, playing iron-willed women who don't take prisoners but capable of so much more, such as Helen Mirren, Judi Dench, Maggie Smith and the like. And for that alone, her death at a mere 52 years old is a travesty. We've been robbed of a star. Yeah, very true. Graham? Oh, scary lady. In Piggy Blinders, that hat. And that yes. stare, and I'm going. Okay, it was me. I did it. <laughs> you know, it's yes, she was yeah. just. She had that really full on. I'm in this role, and this is who I am. And you better believe it. Yeah, great yeah. actress, great actress. And but you can see, all came off the stage. We have to project all of that off the stage mm. and into the audience in real time. We do produce these hard edged female protagonist and she just played it to a T. Great, great sad loss. Sad Diana loss. Rigg in the um Last Light in Soho. Soho, yes, Diana oh, Rigg. In Diana that, Rigg, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, just so many dames that sort of um really are that good. And I, I think Helen McCrory could easily have been one of those. Yeah. And 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 Phil, I guess this is somebody you've heard of this time, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Harry so Potter. The thing yeah, is, for Harry me, Potter, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it, no, for me, it's hard to just get past Peaky Blinders just mm. for that alone. I mean, mm-hmm. she's yeah. just brilliant in it. So, Darren, I mean, I don't watch Peaky Blinders, but the uh, the one that really sticks out for me was um, her playing Sherry Blair in the, in the Queen and in the um, special relationship. She was just so good in that. I mean, and, and she really compliments Michael Sheen. They, they're they so much like the Blairs that, you know, that I just thought, you know, their, their performance was absolutely, you know, wonderful. When I look through her roles that she did, the one that was memorable to me was in um, in Skyfall because she plays the um, the woman who's on the uh, the committee when we're, we're questioning um, M. 
it's only a small role, but she really nails it because she comes across as your typical really hard-hitting, confrontational MP. Just in that little small role, you know, she she was, you know, she was really, you know, really memorable and, and really, to, to her credit, really dislikable, you know, because, 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 you know, just was like a real politician, really. So, yeah, so she was, you could tell from that thing that she was, you know, that she was a, you know, a, a really good actress. I think for me, the point that Neil made is, you know, what she would have become had she, had she remained with us. And she'd have been up there, I think, with Judy Dench and with Helen Mirren. And what I would have loved to have seen do, because we've got this image of her in her mind and it's come out other than the Cherie Blair, of this rather tough lady. And I would have loved to have seen her take on more tender roles. And I think as she got older and the parts diversified, we could have seen much more of what she was capable of. And yeah, I'm sure absolutely. it would have been great. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, after all that front of camera talent, I'm going to go behind the scenes of my selection as I pick one of the great British directors, Michael Apted, 1941 to January, 2021. You never learn how to do it. You just gain experience, you know, so after every film, you're better equipped to do the next one. Unlike everyone else we've spoken about so far, Michael Apted drifted into the entertainment world rather than having that initial drive. He studied law and history at college. And when he is spoken about, it's his TV and documentary work that is remembered before his movies. Now, that's a shame, as a common theme through many of his films is his eye as an outsider and the strong female characters he uses in his films. Now, I'll go back a minute and talk about that documentary series, and that's called Up, not to be confused with the animated film. It started in 1964 as a profile of a group of 14 seven-year-olds, and they were revisited every seven years by Apted. The success and his competence on such shows uh, for Granada at the time, Coronation Street and The Lovers, led to his British movie career beginning in the 1970s, starting with a film version of H.E. Bates' story, The Triple Echo. Eventually, he moved to America, where he directed such landmark films as Coal Miner's Daughter, Gorillas in the Mist, and Nell. In each one of those three, you've got the strong female character. Now, he was equally at home between those character-driven pieces and big action movies like The World Is Not Enough. In recent years, and this seems to become a bit of a trend going through this, Michael Apted had moved back to television with such shows as Ray Donovan and Masters of Sex, finally coming full circle with his last documentary, 63 Up, a moving piece from a very underrated filmmaker. And other films of note, Agatha, 1979, Patang Yang Bang, 1982, Class Action, 1991, Extreme Measures, 1996, and Chasing Mavericks in 2012. I started going to the cinema regularly, as I said many times, and bored everybody with us on this show back in 1975. And I saw two of his films that year. I saw The Triple Echo, which I really didn't like, and Stardust with David Essex, which is a sort of John Lennon-type story. And yeah, I wasn't that impressed. They were entertaining, but you had Alan Parker and Ridley Scott coming up in a couple of years, and they were much better. His film of The Squeeze was okay, and Agatha was, yeah, just passable. So he was in the second division for me at that point. But when he went to America, there was a change of gear that really made me sit up and notice. 
you had Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spacek, which is just an incredible piece of work about Loretta Lynn. Then you have that feminism that runs through that. It's also in Nell, Gorillas in the Mist. And then you have a film called Extreme Measures. Now, Extreme Measures starred Hugh Grant and Gene Hackman. And it is probably one of the most underrated films I've ever seen. It's a medical thriller and it's edge of the seat. It didn't work because at that point, Grant had had the success that he'd had with Four Weddings and nobody wanted to see him doing that sort of film, which is a real shame and it's well worth seeking out. And it shows Michael Apted's real skill as a thriller filmmaker. Throughout his career, he was constantly left fielding us. He did the, the Bond film, The World Is Not Enough. He was one of those that created one of the first films for Channel 4 in Patang Yang Kippabang, Bring On The Night, The Concert by Sting, Gorky Park, another thriller with William Hurt and Lee Marvin. Great. Yeah, Great. excellent. And even Chasing Mavericks, a film he stepped into when the original director became quite ill. And he co-directed that, and it starred Gerard Butler. But it's not an action <laughs> film. It's not an action film in any way, shape, or form. It's it's a true story of a surfer. It's a really powerful character piece, like so many of his films. He's made these films underrated, but really classy character pieces. And, and I think he will be missed. And I hope, as we mentioned about George Siegel, that his work will be rediscovered by film scholars. Uh, Neil? I'll pass over to you first for your comments. I'm just looking at his uh, body of work as a director, and uh, and it's so varied. I mean, Patangian Kipperbang is an absolutely fabulous British film, coming of age type thing. You've got Gorky Park in there. You've got um, this sort of series of 28 up, 43 up, 63 up, is it? Where he takes yeah. the same people and 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 sees how they're getting on, and gorillas in the mist, and uh, just in, uh, just so varied. They had a real talent. Things like Extreme Measures needs to be watched. Uh, it's it's just brilliant. I can't praise that film highly enough. Darren, I'll be honest. I I didn't know the name. You know, when you look at it, you know, the films, the, the, the variety of his movies. I mean, when you when you think that you we, we were talking about Roland Emmerich earlier, oh pretty much makes the same sort of film constantly time and time again. And you know, and, and this chap here, he, he did a Bond movie, he did a Richard Pryor comedy, he did Gorillas in the Mist, he, he did Agatha, which I, I think is an absolutely splendid film. You know, that, that's, a, that's, you know, that's a real good one. But out of his films, if anyone wanted to check out a real good film, I'd go for that one. That's a really good one. But, but the thing that he sort of, you know, the, the lasting thing he had on me was, was the Up series. Um, and it's probably n- nowadays it, you, you explain that it's just um, going back every seven years to pick up on different people's lives because of so much reality TV show. You know, you probably won't think there's anything special about it, but back, back then it was absolutely gripping television. You you would, when it get close to the time, you know, the seven years was up, you, you w- it would become an, an, an event. People getting you know t- together to to watch it, see where their lives had gone, especially because of the guy who became the for want of a better word, the star of the show, was the one whose life took a really dark path who ended up going from this uh, young, bright lad who was seemed like you know, really happy and chirpy to a guy who ended up being homeless and wandering the streets. I always remember every seven years you would be thinking, is this the one where he's going to have passed away? Well, and yeah. It was a fascinating yeah. mm-hmm. TV show because you have these people from all these different backgrounds 
over, over, you know, with different wives. And, and the sad thing is, as you got away to on an older, you know, be, be uh, you know, some of them, be, you know, began began to uh, pass away. It was part of British TV that be, you know, these regular people who became this sort of like, you know, this gripping story. You know, and, and so for that, that is the um, you know the legacy that he is um, that he you know he leaves with me. But an uh, interesting yeah. career. Yeah, Graham. Oh yeah, uh, just to, to follow up on what Darren said, it's just the scope and the breadth of what he's done. You know, from Coronation Street to the coal miner's daughter. Just <laughs> how do you do that? How do you yeah. go from that to that? And then to do something deep and emotional and touching and beautifully photographed like Gorillas in the Mist uh, and then Nell and, you know. Uh, and the performance he got out of Jodie Foster and Nell. It's incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm just looking at, at, the, at this list again, like Neil, and I'm thinking, I've seen almost all of these. <laughs> these well, yeah. You know, he, he hit so many home runs. It, it's, it's untrue. And again, with event television like the Up series, yeah, my wife and I have always sat down, made it a you know a special moment. We sit down and we watch and think, where have these kids got to? And again, it's the young lad who ended up on the street, yeah, because he was so cheerful and really chipper in the early ones, and then it's just his life's just it was awful, absolutely awful, and it just shows you where you just make a few wrong turns in life, and it it all ends up in a very different place from where you expected it to start from. Yeah, great, great director. Wonderful eye for detail. Wonderful eye for detail. Mm. Yeah. I just want to say that on 7 Up, that used to terrify me as a kid because I used to be scared that 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 might be where I would end up. You know, just going from like you know, just a regular happy kid and just making a few wrong steps and ending up on the streets. I was was absolutely terrified that might happen to me. Wow, and and yet you ended up on at the flicks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a wrong step if ever there was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I, when I saw his name on the list, the thing that struck me was um, the Up uh, series, and the reason for that. And I had to look it up to try and work out which one it would have been. But I remember my parents being really excited about this program coming on and saying we're watching this, you don't have any other choice. And we only had one television, so it was like, either go and do something else or watch this programme with my parents. And I remember being bored out of my mind and just going, oh, for goodness sake. And I, I can only assume, having looked at the release dates of these, that that was 35 up and I would have been 10 and bored out of my mind. But then I remember the next time it was on, so I would have been 17, watching it with my parents and being absolutely wrapped and discussing it and talking about it the sort of programme that was universally sort of affecting. Whilst I might have been too young for it, that first time my parents were desperately excited to watch the next instalment. When it came round again, I was watching it with them. And I think that's probably my sort of way of saying, you know, the, the sort of impact that he had just from that documentary series. Almost in a way, I suppose, Phil, he, he created this reality culture that we've got today. I feel like that's almost a slur. Because, yeah, no, yeah, I think, I I think, think so. it's a proper documentary rather it, it than is a proper documentary, sort of... but, you know... It's, yeah, it's but... hardly the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, all right. It wasn't fake, though, was it? It was just, you know... No, no, it is genuine. And, and I think, like him, the genuine article. Okay, Phil, you're up. 
Okay, staying with directors then, we've got another talent who's left us too soon. Jean-Marc Vallée, uh, 1963 to December 2021. Hi, my name is Jean-Marc Vallée. I'm the director of Dallas Buyers Club. I'll start this obituary with a quote from Denis Villeneuve, or Denis Villeneuve, about Jean-Marc. He was honest, authentic, truthful, and incredibly generous. Jean-Marc Vallée was driven to make films. After studying film at Quebec and Montreal, he started making music videos from 1985. This allowed him to raise the funds to make short films, such as his first called Stereotypes, which in turn led to his first feature, Blacklist. A big hit in Quebec and certainly got him noticed on the world stage. After that came highly acclaimed features such as Dallas Buyers Club, for which he was nominated for his only Oscar for editing. And in turn, this led to a remarkable TV series where he had full range of expression, Big Little Lies. This seemed to be a format which suited the filmmaker, and it's sad that his talent has ended so soon. As Denis Villeneuve said, his cinema was born out of pure, raw, gold humanity, a remarkable filmmaker. Some of his other great films are Los Locos, 1997, Wild, 2014, Demolition, 2015, and Sharp Objects, uh, which is 2018. So the reason I picked Jean-Marc is because, kind of bizarrely, I've got round to watching Sharp Objects uh, last year in 2021, and three years, three years after it was actually released. And I was just so impressed by how gripping and hopeful a brutally dark story could be. And the day before I was writing my um, best television of 2021, where I was going to write about Sharp Objects, the news broke that Jean-Marc Vallée had died, and I was stunned because of his age. Looking back at his key works, I've got to say it's a great loss. Sharp Objects is his final directed work, and it's a monument to his talent. Darren, I'll go to you first. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, again, it is, is not a, a, a director's name that I was familiar with, but obviously I've seen his Dallas Buyers Club, obviously. But the, the, one, that, the one that I really liked was, uh, was Wild. You know, I thought that was absolutely, you know, amazing. Mm, yeah, I, I think as one of the things I liked about that is it didn't romanticize the whole concept of, you know, traveling and going on a trail. It, it sort of, it made it feel how I always thought it to be. And that is sort of like, you know, really dirty, un, un, you know, uncomfortable, a, a real challenge and a lot to get out of sort of traveling. But also, it, you know, it, it had that sort of like, you know, that this was a, a rough, difficult, thing and, and, and i and i really you know i really ad- admired that about the film reef witherspoon i think is absolutely you know uh you know wonderful in that film it's got a really great tone to it so so to me that is the one that i um i really like for his i, I mean I, i've got to admit i didn't really sort of watch any of his television i almost watched demolition for the first time this week because it's just appeared on um, disney plus in the uk so uh, you know, so that's one I'm going to be checking out at some point. But um, but yeah, you know, just for two films that I, I really know him for, that was Buyers Club and, and Wild. You know, I think I think you know two amazing movies. Neil, I honestly I haven't seen Dallas Buyers Club even, so I'm struggling. I'm just writing down all these film names now: uh, Dallas Buyers Club, uh, Wild, and Demolition as well. Yeah, I need to catch up on this one. This is. Um, this is a, a complete gap in my uh, my knowledge. Okay, Graham. which is pathetic. Um, yeah, uh, Wild and Demolition, uh, both uh, for me are brilliant. I wasn't that impressed by Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, I mean, I thought it was good, 
but I thought Demolition and Wild were great. It's these these things where people's lives fall to pieces, and then you see how they cope with it, uh, and and what brings them back and back into the world. And I really like those sort of interesting character studies. And I, I know Phil has this thing about he likes movies about losers who go on a journey and nothing happens. <laughs> but uh, Jean-Marc is very different. He It's about losers who go on a journey, but stuff does happen, and there's a payoff at the end. So I like that. So I'm really intrigued by Sharp Objects. I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head there, actually, because if you look at Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects, the lead characters in those have the same qualities that you just said about the lead characters in World and Demolition. So somebody who's had a great trauma mm. and they're still plugging away. Yeah, it's the endurance of the human spirit. And uh, I mean, and endurance being the operative word in the in Wild, you know, where she actually does give herself uh, something that she has to constantly endure but so but then he did young victoria yes which, I actually have which, is seen. On, which is on tv shortly is it yeah it's actually very good it's actually very good and there's it's another like, one i haven't seen so i'm gonna have to sharp objects uh and young victoria oh, okay a, i'll finish by name dropping as i like to do i i i once had the opportunity to talk to Cheryl straight uh about the filming of wild because she was on set and her daughter played her as a young person in some very dramatic sequences in Wild. Cheryl Strait told me all about the time and care that Jean-Marc set up to make sure it was a safe environment. Cheryl Strait was, like, traumatised by the filming after it had complete, but her daughter loved it. So it was really good going <laughs> through those uh, scenes, yeah. He was a great director, and, and he got you know performances like that out of people who were not traditionally actors. So... Yeah, full full credit to him. And again, another talent gone too soon. I really would have liked to have seen how he would have developed on TV because I think, as Phil says, with Sharp Objects, which is not a great deal of fun to watch, but it is good, he went to some dark places. Okay. And now we have an added obituary. Friend of the pod, Niall, from Movies in Focus, once interviewed the legendary director, Richard Donner, who also passed away in 2021. Recently, Graham and I caught up with Niall and asked him about his memories of Mr. Donner. Hi, Niall. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. We don't speak often enough, I say. <laughs> that is true. Hopefully, we'll get back on track with some kings later this year. And cool. uh, it'll be always great to have you back on those. So thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this section of the show to talk about film director Richard Donner. Is that me? Is it really? It's hard to understand. I, I just... Um... I got very fortunate that I was able to make movies. Richard sadly passed away in July 2021. Now, a few years ago, you interviewed the great man. What are your thoughts about him and his legacy? Anyone who sort of reads my site and sort of follows me will know that I'm a huge Richard Donner fan, kind of going back years. I think his legacy, I mean, you look at the films that he's made from Superman, The Goonies, Lethal Weapon, The Omen. His entire career is kind of filled with classic movies of, you know, from the 70s to 2000s. So I, I think he's one of the great film directors, even though he might not have been a household name to many. But what I think is interesting about him is he made The Omen when what, he was 45. Yeah. So a later start than most directors. But he had this huge background on American TV that he brought in. And as you say, I mean, 
for me, The Omen and Superman. Funny enough, Lethal Weapon 2 has got a special place in my heart. These are great movies. He knows how to direct action. He knows how to get the best out of people. One of the things, I think he's a very good performance director. I mean, he's known for his action, but if you actually look at... Uh, Christopher Reeve in Star- uh, Superman or Gene Hackman in Superman. Those are great performances. And even the relationship between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover in the Lethal Weapon movies, there's a lot of heart there. And I, I think that's what he's, he's actually really good at. He can do the spectacle, but he can also do these really, really good character moments as well. It's interesting you say that because another actor who passed this year is Ned Beatty. I've never seen anybody take on Ned Beatty to do a comedy role like Richard Donner did in Superman. And again, that's another great performance. You know, you, you think of that Otis character. And in any other movie, he could have been a really annoying character. Yet he works so well with Lex Luthor. You know, it's a really good combination. So what was he like when you spoke to him? An absolute dream to speak with. I've sort of interviewed quite a few people over the years. And some of them have been slightly curmudgeon on occasion. But he was an absolute dream. I kind of ended up speaking with him. He was at home. He was just sort of sitting there, relaxed, mellow. And I think I spoke to him about 50, 55 minutes. And I kind of had to, to tr- draw to a close. I could have spoken to him all day. It was like speaking to your really, really nice, friendly uncle about films that he just happened to make. It was an absolute joy, you know, an absolute beautiful man. And so, so nice. What did he say about Ladyhawks? I believe that was his personal favourite. Yes, that's where he met his wife, uh, Lauren Schuller Donner, at the time. And uh, that's got a very um, contentious soundtrack. Some people love it. Some people hate it. It's very sort of synth-driven. Uh, I love it. And he was talking about he was listening to a lot of the Alan Parsons project, I think, around that time, um, when he was location yeah. scouting. And that sort of inspired the soundtrack to the movie he said when he he thought about the soundtrack he thought about going around looking at the 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 movie and his wife so to him it wasn't as contentious as it was for for other people and you see things like a knight's tale take contemporary songs and put it into a film but i think it all started with him and that soundtrack for that film that could have been a very john williamsy score kind of lush strings does it date the movie slightly yes but it adds a quality that i think makes it stand out from all the sort of sword and sorcery movies from that that era. It's a shame he never got to do Lethal Weapon 5, which is what I think his final dream project, wasn't it? Yes, and when I spoke with him, he was just waiting on getting a draft of the script in, and he seemed very sort of eager to do it. He was sort of late 80s, 90-ish, I think, when I interviewed him, but he seemed sort of game to do it. But apparently he's asked Mel Gibson to do it, and Mel Gibson has said yes, and uh, hopefully, I think it's going to be a HBO Max movie. Oh, right. But, I mean, HBO Max seemed to be taking all these old Warner properties and sort of dusting them off without having them bomb at the box office, I think, and also get subscriptions. So I think the plan is for it to be a HBO Max, and hopefully the the whole gang will be back. And my final question on this is, what's your favourite Richard Donner movie? That's a tough question. I love so many of them. I love the Lethal Weapon movies. Scrooged, I think, is... That's one of my go-to Christmas films. I watch it every year. I think it's brilliant. Superman, The Omen. I would say if I had to pick Lethal Weapon, probably because where it stands in that era of sort of action cinema, would you have a Die Hard without Lethal Weapon and all those sort of those other movies? I don't know if you would. I mean, so I think the success of that Shane Black script, a great soundtrack. 
If I had to pick, I would probably say Lethal Weapon. But then I said, uh, there's Maverick that I love. I think that's a great sort of comedy western. And I, I know, uh, Graham, you're a big Mel Gibson fan. So, uh, oh, <laughs> bloody the lie continues. Jesus. But, <laughs> but yeah, just so many. I mean, I, I think Richard Donner, such a great director. And his entire filmography, I think, you know, every so often I like to stick on The Omen. I think that's a, a, one of the best horror films. So I, I haven't really helped you with that one. But if I had to choose. Probably, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> The scattergun approach, yeah. For, for people listening, there's a whole raft of brilliant movies there. And if you've never checked out Richard Donner's filmography, then just run through that list that Niall just spoke about and check them out. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. So thank you for that, Niall. No, well, thank you. And what do you have coming up on Movies in Focus for 2022? Well, funnily enough, Movies in Focus is actually celebrating 10 years of existence in 2022, which is hard to believe. Wow. So it'll be more of the same, more reviews, more interviews. Last year, I started the Movies and Focus podcast. Um, so I've had some. That's great. Highly recommended. Where yeah. can people get that from? No? Um, it's it's available where most uh, people get their podcasts. You can also sort of click on the site and sort of it's on there as well. But yeah, available where you get your usual podcasts. And yeah, hopefully I'll continue that this year. Get a, a couple of great guests on and continue sort of talking about movies and. Everything that Movies and Focus usually does and stands for. We hope you'll join us for a couple of shows with us this year as well for a couple of things we'd like to talk about that we know you're an expert on. Well, definitely. You know, I, I always uh, love talking movies, so anytime. Well, thank you very much. And there's a link in our show notes to the Movies and Focus site. Please check it out. And please check out the late, great Richard Donner's filmography. Thank you, now. Thank you, now. Thank you. Thank you, Niall. And finally, on this sad subject, a brief roll call of just some of the other famous names who passed on during 2021. Michael K. Williams, taken too early. This talented actor never made the same impact in cinema as he did in The Wire and Boardwalk Empire. Ned Beatty, forever known as the man raped in Deliverance, but check him out in Superman and hear my song, so talented. Yafet Koto. Parker in Alien and a Bond villain in Live and Let Die, one of the great actors of his generation. Where would he have been if he'd not turned down Lando Calrissian? Hal Holbrook, so good at playing corrupt authority, check out Magnum Force, All the President's Men and Capricorn One, a monumental talent. Dean Stockwell, famous for his role in Quantum Leap, but he was so much more. A former child star, he successfully moved to long-term career in such films as Dune, Blue Velvet and Air Force One. Micus Theodakius, Greek composer who most famous for Zorba the Greek, but also check out Zed and the wonderful Greek tycoon. And finally to end this section, and it's very sad, Chick Venera, who famously was, of course, Marv the Leatherman in Thank God It's Friday. Oh, no. dance in the car park as Marv is one of the greatest dance sequences in the history of cinema. Oh, no. We have to end on that. And many others, too numerous to mention here. To everyone, we say thank you for entertaining and educating us. After that sad reflection, let's go to our alternative awards.
Welcome to the red carpet. It's good to see everyone seated and booted for the occasion. Although, Jeff, I must ask you to change out of your Screw Marvel t-shirt. It's not appropriate, Jeff. As we are already running late, let's get on with the show. Graham, I believe you are presenting the first award, and it's one of the big ones. The Gibson Award for the best Mel Gibson movie of the year. (laughs) God, here we go again. The lie continues. Thank you so much for giving me the honor of presenting this achievement to my filmmaking hero, it says here. While 2021 was a poor year overall, the brightness of Mel's talent kept me and many others going. He certainly gave me hope in the darkest of hours as I basked in the glow of his superior (laughs) talent. And now to thank him, I have the honour of handing out the Gibson Award. The nominations for the Gibson Award for the best Mel Gibson movie of the year are Fat Man. I know this was last year, but I wanted it carried over as it's so good. As I said (laughs) at the time, the Mel should be Father Christmas in every film going forward, including remakes of Miracle on 34th Street and Santa Claus the Movie. (laughs) Boss Level. As I said in my review, a trippy Groundhog Day style movie with the male as the bad guy, but he should have played the hero. His performance elevated everyone else's in this classic film. Force of Nature, not yet released in the UK, thank God. But as a late Christmas present, Jeff has promised to show this film to me after the show wraps. He's <laughs> such a good friend. Yeah. I am as excited as listener Frank calling on his next door neighbours and their sisters. <laughs> <laughs> and the winner is... Boss Level. <laughs> and not because, as one person said, he isn't in it much and got killed. Sorry for the spoilers, blame Neil. Although Phil quite correctly pointed out, while this was a better film, you got more Mel for your buck in Fat Man, but in Boss Level you got Mel Class, an actor worth his weight in gold. I am overcome with emotion and I must now sit down. (laughs) An actor worth his weight in gold. That's an awful lot of gold. Thanks, Graham. You certainly look flushed after that and... And has your wallet suddenly expanded in your pocket? Moving on quickly to the next award. The Star Wars Award for the most pointless sequel. You may have noticed they've stopped making Star Wars films since we introduced this award. Anyway, the nominations for the Star Wars Award for the most pointless sequel are Peter Rabbit 2. The Stew is a far better investment. Candyman, say his name five times while looking in a mirror and a woke commentator appears to ask if you have a license to watch this rubbish. Halloween Kills, which managed to both kill interest in the series and almost every other character who had survived previous films. Clearly, they read the script in advance and wanted out. (laughs) Venom, let there be carnage. Never, ever let your stars get involved in developing the story. Tell them to just stick to acting. The Kingsman, a prequel designed for the QAnon Brigade, where conspiracy is more important than plot. Special mention award for Graham, who, while compiling his list, confused Mortal Kombat with G.I. Joe Snake Eyes. (laughs) Clearly one was made by director Doyle. I mean, they're basically the same, aren't they? And the winner is... 
Venom, Let There Be Carnage. What can you say about a film where the only interesting moment is a mid-credit sequence that is technically an advert for a film coming shortly? Given the talent involved, this is both lazy and boring. Can we suggest the next Venom movie being called Venom, Let There Be Entertainment? Jeff, over to you for the Braveheart Award for the most annoying rewriting of history. Thanks, Neil. And I see Graham's ears have picked. Uh, Graham's ears have picked up with the mention of a Mel classic. At least I hope it's his ears. Oh you're at, God! You're actually proud of yourself for writing stuff like that, aren't you? <laughs> Very proud, actually. <laughs> myself an award, the Braveheart Award for the most annoying rewrite in the history, and the nominations are Fast and the Furious Nine. Never mind about history. This one rewrites basic science. America, the motion picture. Not so much a rewriting of history, more a ripping up of the history book and throwing the pages on a Nazi fire rally. Take those crayons off the scriptwriters now. King Richard. For rewriting Richard III as not a king of England, but a tennis coach in the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> the King's I don't Man. think you watched that film properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the king- and, and the princes in the tower become two black girl tennis players. <laughs> <laughs> Who win everything for about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, that works. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway weren't interrupted like this when they were presenting their awards at the Oscars. <laughs> they should have been, right they should have been the way <laughs> it all turned out. The like right out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the King's Man, <laughs> amazed that it didn't cover the Spanish flu as a conspiracy to make us all wear masks and Rasputin revealed to be none other than Chris Whitty. <laughs> Six minutes to midnight would have been more truthful if Eddie Izzard had played the headmistress in a St. Trinian's manner. <laughs> and the filmmakers wanted us to believe Wales could stand in for England. I thought it looked too good. And the winner is... King Richard, which also had the cheek to portray the Plantagenet dynasty as black. If political <laughs> correctness gone mad... Over to Phil for the next award. Thanks, Jeff, you madman. Uh, the next award is the Hobbit Trilogy Award for the most gratuitous cash-in. The nominations are People Just Do Nothing, Big in Japan, where we wish this rubbish had stayed. I really, <laughs> really agree with that. Um, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Try saying that title five times fast when you're drunk. And drunk is the only way to watch this tired sequel. Jungle Cruise, turn a 15-minute 70-year-old theme park ride into a dull and unexcited adventure with PlayStation 2 graphics standing in for CGI special effects, a yawn fest of jaw-cracking proportions. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that under duress as well. I don't, I don't mean that. Um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, that sound you hear is Harold Ramis spinning in his grave over his treatment in this movie. Okay. And the winner is... Jungle Cruise. Disney would have had more success and entertainment value with It's a Small World, the movie. (laughs) Unbelievable. Over to Darren for the Heaven's Gate Award. Thank you, Phil. This award is the Heaven's Gate Award for the most embarrassing failure. The nominations are Malcolm and Marie, Sam Levinson's reimagining of 70s British comedy Love Thy Neighbour. Designed to make you feel sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read that before. I usually read these things. 
You bastard. That, that's not my work. This is all Darren. Oh, good God. <laughs> oh, Darren. Jesus Christ. <laughs> sorry, carry on. <laughs> Designed to make you feel sorry for the Eddie Booth character, having to put up with living next door to this couple <laughs> and enjoying their arguments every night. Oh, Ar- Army of the Dead. Sorry, Zack Snyder. You can't blame but Joss Whedon for ruining this one. America the Motion Picture. A film that attempted to parody Hollywood's inane, smug and stupid approach to American history, but itself never rising above being inane, smug and stupid itself. Snake Eyes G.I. Joe Origins. If you gave a couple of kids a bunch of G.I. Joe figures to play with for 90 minutes, they would have come up with a better storyline than this, and the performances would have been less plastic as well. And maybe Graham would have been able to avoid mistaking it for Mortal Kombat. (laughs) Crime Macho Clint Eastwood stars as a dirty old man who takes a young man under his wing during a road trip Honestly, Johnny Knoxville made a much more moving film with this when he made Bad Grandpa (laughs) And the winner is America the Motion Picture Quite possibly the worst film of the century that proved that satirical animation with biting pop culture references are not as easy as South Park makes them. And while I try to forget all that nonsense, I will land over to Graham for the next award. Cheers, Darren. I'm getting rid of those memories of America the Motion Picture by thinking of the male's excellence. I have achieved enlightenment. And now back to the awards. This award is the Steven Seagal Award for the actor you don't want to see next year. The nominations are John David Washington, Two Years and Two Awful Movies, A Third Strike and You're Out. LeBron James proved he should stay on the basketball court after his awful performance in Space Jam Legacy, outacted by a cartoon character. Gerard Leto, who this year overacted in The Little Things and House of Gucci. Being weird is not acting, Gerard. Not every performance has to be seen from space. Mel Gibson. Okay, who had the cheek to nominate them All of us. (laughs) Clint (laughs) Clint Eastwood. Just tragic to see his name on this list. Why, Clint, why? And the winner is... Gerard Leto, who recently has given performances so bad that we have started a GoFundMe for those acting lessons you desperately need. Details can be found on our show notes. Over to Jeff for a new award this year. Cheers, Graham. Now, I'm honoured to be presenting this first-time award, the Colonel Sanders Award for the filmmaker or performer who finally got it right. The nominations are Denis Villeneuve, finally with Dune, he's made a great film. I wonder who predicted that. Emerald Fennell, who knocked it out of the park with Promising Young Woman, this after a series of fairly mediocre films. Zack Snyder for presenting Justice League, and he's always intended. Of course he did. Ben Wheatley, In the Earth, is easily his best film, but then there wasn't that much competition. And the winner is... Denny Villeneuve. I predicted he would get there in the end, guys. And I forgive him for some really awful earlier movies he made. You're not biased at all. 
Thanks, Jeff. These awards are going on longer than the Oscars, and I need to get to Elton John's party to get the costume ready as well. The next award is the Boris Johnson Award for the Family Film of the Year. The nominations are Peter Rabbit 2, like the lead voice actor, Bodger is very annoying and, like the animal, can't seem to stop breeding. The Mitchells versus the Machines. Just like the film robots looking at Bodger would be asking themselves the question of dog, pig, loaf of bread, useless fat bastard. (laughs) Saints of Newark. His family of whips will make you an offer you can't refuse. And the winner is the Mitchells versus the Machines, simply because it's the best family film of the year. And if Bodger watched it, he might learn something about values. I need to sit down as I hand over to Phil for the final broadcastable award of the night, the Piers Corbin Award for the most unbelievable plot development. Thanks, Neil. The nominations for the Piers Corbin Award for the most unbelievable plot development are that someone thought any aspect of America the Motion <laughs> Picture was a good idea. Yeah. I won't comment this time, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Fast and Furious 9 for any scene involving physics. <laughs> Malignant, you cannot have twins from a single fertilised egg being different sexes. (laughs) Clint Eastwood still able to have sex and cry macho. (laughs) The Tomorrow War, prepare yourself for this, sending ordinary people into the future with no military training to deal with an alien invasion rather than assembling and training a fighting force with the knowledge from the future to be ready for the aliens when they arrived. (sighs) Phew. I hated that film. And the winner is... Cry Macho. Nice try, Clint. Keep it up. So to, so to speak. <laughs> that, you'll be pleased to hear, is the end of the awards. Apart from the awards, Graham will not let me tell you about, because they include... Thanks for that, Jeff. At least three laws are broken with those awards. So sorry, listener, you'll never hear them, especially you, listener Frank, as you might sue. OK, let's get positive and inclusive. What are you looking forward to in 2022? What are your top five must-see movies? Over to Jeff to start. Remember, Jeff, this section of the show is meant to be positive. Hey, positive is my middle name, Neil. And no, it isn't. <laughs> OK, so, yeah. Sorry, I really should have thought of something funnier than that, but I couldn't. Absolutely hysterical. Um, So, remaining positive. My five films I'm really looking forward to. So, April 22nd for Operation Mincemeat. Now, if you live in Europe, then at least you get a chance to see this in the cinema. Netflix has snapped it up for everywhere else in the world. That title might make you think, oh, he's picked another horror film. Yeah, but not one that splits on a single cell, I can assure you. This, in fact, is a very strange story from World War II, where the Allies cast doubt on the invasion of Sicily in 1943 by having a dead Welshman placed in officer's uniform with plans showing the invasion would actually take place elsewhere. The body was left for Nazis to find, so they followed the plan. It's a so, hell of a story, though, isn't it? It is a great story, and it's filmed before, 1956 film The Man Who Never Was, directed by Ronald Neem. Then they couldn't name the person who was used in the cover-up because of the Official Secrets Act, but now they can. The cast includes Colin Firth, Kenny MacDonald, Matthew McFadden, Johnny Flynn, who's playing Ian Fleming, I'll have you know, and Jason Isaacs. Directed by John Madden, I think this is going to be a winner. 
And then in June the 24th, Elvis. Now, at the moment, not much is known about this take on Elvis Presley's life from director Baz Luhrmann. I mean, even that title's tentative. There's no trailer. But it's the life of Elvis Presley directed by the incredibly talented and off-the-wall Baz Luhrmann. And it stars Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, who is a bit of a bastard. Parker, that is, not Hanks. Parker was the controlling influence over the king of rock and roll, and not always in a good way. As a result, Presley missed out on many offers that could have expanded his talent and possibly even stopped him dying so young. Because I don't know if you know this, Barbara Streisand originally offered him the part that went to Chris Christopherson in A Star Is Born. And had he taken it and got in shape for it, it would have extended his life by a number of years. Anyway, newcomer Austin Butler plays Presley. And I have a feeling this could be the surprise hit of the summer. Anyone who says otherwise probably has a suspicious mind. Oh, God. <laughs> Bullet Train, July the 15th. Now, I believe David Leach is one of the best action directors out there at the moment. Credits like John Wick, Atomic Blonde, and who can forget the fight on the stairs in that film? Hobbs and Shaw, and they all back up this claim. Now we have the all-action Bullet Train, where five assassins are on a Japanese bullet train with assignments to kill each other. And what a cast. Brad Pitt, Sandra Bullock, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Zazie Beetz, and Michael Shannon. With that cast and that director, how could this possibly fail? And then September? Don't worry, darling. A 1950s housewife starts to suspect the life she's living is not a reality. It's a rather different take on The Stepford Wives, which is always one of my favourite fantasy films, and it stars Florence Pugh, Chris Pines and Harry Styles. It's directed by Olivia Wilde, so I suspect that they're not going to look on this put-down of feminism in the way I'd like. And it could well be the science fiction event of the year. But as you know me, I always like to talk about superhero movies. And there is one in my list, The Flash in November 4th. As we all know, DC's better than Marvel. So it's no surprise that their film, The Flash, is going to be huge. It's going to show Spider-Man No Way Home exactly how to do these parallel world stories by bringing in Batman, as played by Michael Keaton, and also Ben Affleck. With Ezra Miller starring, this is going to be an exciting end of the year. That's my five, lads. So my first one, um, and I know Phil's got this one as well, The Batman. I mean, duh, the trainers look fantastic. Hopefully I don't let my expectations run too high. Calm down, Neil. Is that but your you, wallet, Neil? It'll be fine. Um, don't worry, darling. Jeff has already mentioned that. Florence Pugh is back. Hooray. This time directed by Olivia Wilde. The third one, Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese, again, hooray, with De Niro and DiCaprio and a newcomer called Lily Gladstone, who reports indicate is really good. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, awesome first film, fingers crossed for this one. And the fifth one, Blazing Samurai, an animation loosely based on the classic Blazing Saddles, and one we recommended last year. I'm pretty sure we remembered uh, recommended last year as Eldorf. Uh, best to rem- recommend again, then. Voice cast includes Michael Cera, Samuel L. Jackson, Ricky Gervais, Mel Brooks, George Taco, Michelle Yeoh, Jimon Honsu, and a whole host of others. I am looking forward to that one. Okay, so my, um, my list begins with um, Nope which I uh, I discovered that you can't say nope without really emphasising the P in there. This is coming out in July, <laughs> no, and, it's, indeed, yeah. and it's Jordan Peele's latest movie. 
I really liked um, Get Jeff's favourite. Yep. I really like Get Out. I liked Us even more. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. What I really like about this, though, is there's, there's so much secrecy surrounding the film. The only thing we've got so far is a poster that looks really intriguing because it's poster of a uh, of cloud uh, in some sort of storm. So it could be that this is like a, a sci-fi type movie. It could be a disaster movie. There's so many possibilities. But to me, I really hope that they keep the secrecy that surrounds this right up to the film's release. I think that would be awesome. So I'm really excited to, about this one to see what Jordan Peele's got coming, coming out next. My second movie is a film I discovered. It's one of the most exciting trailers I've seen in ages because it looks just so unique and bizarre. It's called Everything All at Once, and it's a film starring Michelle Yeoh. And the great thing about this is it's she plays just an everyday woman working in a really humdrum everyday job, and she finds out that, that there's a multiverse that is collapsing around her. So throughout the film, you start to see all the different possibilities of the, of what her life could have been. And so sometimes she's a movie star, sometimes she has a really exciting life. And there's even one bit in the trailer that shows where she actually does a bit of, where she actually has a, another life where she's a, a karate expert. So you see her doing sort of martial arts. The film itself, it, it looks really bizarre in the trailer. And and that's what really gets me about this is it looks really, really impressive and frantic. And you've got a basic sort of plot there, but I really think that this, it has an art movie type vibe to it, but it also looks like it could be quite commercial. I'm really looking forward to this. Anything with Michelle Yeoh, I really enjoy. But yeah, the, you know, the trailer is one of the most intriguing I've seen in ages. I think this could be a really exciting one. I think this could be the um, the surprise hit of the year. Uh, the next one is a British-made film called Phantom of the Open, and it's actually a golf movie. It's a true story uh, about a character called Maurice Flipcroft. Now, Maurice Flipcroft was a guy who decided to take up golf uh, late in life, and after just a few games, he thought that he'd mastered it. And he was so confident in that is that he decided he was going to enter the British Open, and he actually thought that he had a chance of winning it. And somehow he actually managed to blag his way through the entry process, right about um, a few tournaments he'd been in, and actually managed to get into the uh, the qualifiers where he had an absolute disaster of a, of a round. Mark Rylance plays Morris in this film, so I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, this film, to me, looks like it's going to be the golf version of Eddie Viedo Edwards. So, and, and also they actually uh, did... Yeah, I know about this guy, he's... He's hilarious. He is hilarious. I, I don't know. They still don't know how he got through. He actually uh, wrote a book about this, which I bought for my dad for um, Christmas a few years back. So, yeah, this is one I'm really looking forward to. The next one comes out in April, and this is one that could be the greatest movie of the year, or it could be an absolute train wreck. And it's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And it stars Nicholas Cage. I know it well. Yeah. as Nicolas Cage. And the story in this is that Nicolas Cage um, ends up getting invited to do a, a special appearance on an island for a millionaire who is obsessed with Nicolas Cage. Part of the story is that Nicolas Cage's family gets kidnapped by this guy. So Nicolas Cage actually starts to adopt the mannerisms of some of his characters from like Conair and from Face Off to actually rescue them. 
it's Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage characters, but in Nicolas Cage in the real world. This blows my mind. Like I say, it could be an absolute train wreck. It could be awesome, but I'm going to be there to see this one because I'm really excited for this. I think I think this could be just the mo- one of the most talked about films this year. I think I can't wait. Darren, I think you recommended this last year. It's been held over. Yeah. Did yeah. I? So you're very consistent. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> well, I'm scared now because I can't remember that. So. Yeah, I think you did. I think you did. I'll have to double check that. But yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. That, that's a bit scary because uh, that means my mind's going. Okay. Anyway. But, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome to the club. Oh, welcome to okay. the club. Yes. My final choice. I'm going to have to wait all the way till November for, and this is a film called Babylon. And there's very little being known about this at this stage, apart from the fact that it's going to be set in 1920s Hollywood around um, silent movie stars. And the two main characters in this are played by Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. And there's also a great cast um, with this film. Uh, You've got Tobey Maguire, you've got Samara Weaving, you've got Olivia Wilde, Eric Roberts. This is kind of a movie that I... Love a big ensemble, anything which is actually uh, talking about you know movies of the past. I absolutely love it's got Oscar bait all over it. I mean, the fact it's going to be released in November, which is I think is when the uh, the cutoff is for the Oscars, you, you can tell what they're actually going for. Just everything about this, uh, from, from what it's sounding, I, I, I've just got a feeling that this is uh, this is going to be an awesome movie, and and uh, I can't wait for this one. Excellent. That's Damien Chazelle's latest, isn't it? Yes. I've just checked, and uh, yeah, Darren's film list from last year, Suicide Squad, Marvel TV series, Wheelie's Wonderland, so you know, consistent, unbearable weight of massive talent, Army of the Dead and Blonde. Wow. Oh, Blonde, Blonde didn't get released either. You know what's really scary? When I was doing this list, Blonde was another one that I almost put on. So that would have been uh, two films that I actually put on um, last year's list that I have no <laughs> uh, memory of actually putting on. Well, I was, was going to say, far, only five films is torture. I apparently am very much like Neil because my list crosses over quite a bit so anyway okay talking of films we've had on our list for a while top gun maverick this has been on my list for what seems like a decade now i really need to feel the need for speed it has to come out this year it's going to be amazing right tom cruise flying jets the next one is the batman yes i know it's predictable but it looks just amazing and it's not actually that long to go now and then I have The North Man. We all know that Robert Eggers makes crazy good films. Jeff really likes The Witch. Oh, and, yeah, um, absolutely. The Lighthouse was amazing as well. I haven't seen um, that yet. I'm sure you'll like it, Jeff. <laughs> it's like The Witch, absolutely. I mean, this time it looks like, from the trailer, it looks like he's got a bigger budget and um, the cast is pretty phenomenal as well. So that one looks pretty special. Killers of the Flower Moon. So we've already mentioned this. Scorsese, DiCaprio, De Niro. I was going to say, and Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons is brilliant in everything that he does. Fingers crossed it's something special. Can, can I ask a quick question on that? You and Neil have mentioned it. Is it coming to cinemas or is it just for Apple TV? I think it's Netflix, not Apple. Um, really? Okay. I think it's going to be like, what was the last one he did uh, that was three hours long with Pacino and De Niro? The Irishman. 
the Irishman. Irishman. I think it's going to be a similar thing to that where the Irishman came out at some select cinemas about a month before it landed on Netflix. Either way, if it comes out somewhere, I'll be traveling. Hopefully they don't make me go too far, like London or something crazy. But I'll try and watch that at the cinema. And my fifth one, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1, I believe is its full title. Is it? So the original was my favorite film of 2018. And Lord and Miller films are jam-packed with imagination. We briefly touched on Mitchells versus the Machines earlier. So if it's anywhere near as good as the original Spider-Man, uh, what was what was that one? Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. My son and I were discussing this, and he's already says that he thinks the third film, because they said it's a trilogy, he thinks that should be called Out of the Spider-Verse. <laughs> so we've got Into, Across there, and uh, Ridley calls Out of. So we'll see. We'll see in a few years' time, shall we? Okay. Thank you. Graham. Well, as I get to go last, I think most people have covered everything. The Batman. Um, You had me at Noir Superhero. 13 Lives. Um, This was brought to my notice by BBC News reporter and at the Flicks contributor Steve Nibbs. And it's the true story of the rescue mission in Thailand where a group of young boys and their soccer coach were trapped in a system of underground caves that were flooding. And it's directed by Ron Howard, Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind, stars Colin Farrell, Vigo Morgenstern, and Joel Egerton. So I'm expecting the same edge-of-the-seat pacing uh, he did so well in uh, Apollo 13. Is uh, Elon Musk producing that? <laughs> the pedo uh. guy. <laughs> he referred to him as, yeah. The other film I'm looking forward to is The Duke, Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. This is something silly and very British. Uh, comedy tonic to juxtapose the current state of the nation. In 1961, Mm. a 60-year-old taxi driver stole a Goya portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery. Uh, He sends a ransom note saying that he will return the painting if the government invests more in the care of the elderly. Comes out at the end of Feb, and I was thinking of taking Jeff to see it as a treat for his 80th birthday. That's uh, that's very kind of you. But by the way, do you know which Bond film had a joke of that picture in it? Yes, didn't it? It was um, Dr. No. It was Dr. No. Dr. No, yeah. Yeah. Because he he mentions, or he looks at the painting, doesn't he, in Dr. No's lair. Yeah, they hadn't got it back by that time. They got it back shortly. It's not very good. It's what, the film is not very good? No, no, the painting. Oh, the painting. It's mentioned in the trailer. Oh, right. But there's both of them are standing looking at it going, it's not very good, is it? Um, my fourth film is Killers of the Flower Moon which we've all discussed already and yes, my fifth is Don't Worry Darling, starring Florence Pugh Harry Styles, Chris Pine director Olivia Wilde because I loved her book smart she's now moving into psychological thrillers, so I can't wait to see that, that looks like it's going to be really good Which actor got kicked out of Don't Worry Darling and they replaced him with Harry Styles Miles Teller, I don't know. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Was it Shia LaBeouf? Yeah. Yeah. Is that because he's didn't one of his ex girlfriends accuse her him of um, beating on her? He's a dick. He should have been beaten more as a child, to be quite honest. Um, (laughs) Anyway, thank you everyone for those excellent choices, and uh, I think it's it shows what this year is going to be like. Because okay, there's a few films that overlap. 
but there's still a lot of wide variety there. Full credit to Darren, who picked five films that nobody else picked. So, yes. There we go. Although yeah. he did pick most of them from last, last year. year. <laughs> so, yeah. Praising him or just appreciating his consistency. <laughs> um, okay, so next month we return to our regular review schedule and Darren's Dash is back. Okay, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the cam. And we almost got through it without mentioning the scandal. For those out there without access to the British press, it's my sad duty to report, to report that Neil has been stripped of his title of his Royal Golfing Highness because of that party he held at the 18th hole. Don't you mean 19th? No, Graham, that was the problem. <laughs> Things got so unruly, the groundsman had to have surgery to have that flag removed. In my defence, I didn't realise it was a party until the fourth bank and the screams from the groundsman. <laughs> and I thought golf was boring. It, it is, generally. <laughs> and to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye. Give him a set again. Oh, Tim! Tim! Set a Tim! On the nosy! Set a give?